Good Physics Day, everyone. Can you believe it? Physics Alive has been hitting the airwaves for almost a year now. We're at episode 31, and I feel like I've barely begun to scratch the surface of all the guests I could invite onto the show, not to mention all of the ideas I have for other episodes. I, I want to record more episodes where I summarize articles from physics teaching journals. I want to talk to folks who use physics in their, in their careers and can share stories and science that students in your classes could listen to. To help this show grow, I'm going to need your support. Producing a podcast is great fun. I love speaking with guests, and this way of serving the physics community fits well with my talents and interests. But producing podcast content is time-consuming. It requires fees to maintain a website and podcast hosting services, and it requires equipment to produce great audio. If you find this podcast valuable, and if you have the means to help support the show, then I invite you to visit my Patreon page patreon.com slash physics alive support tiers start at two dollars per month with higher tiers available for individuals and departments with more resources this support would allow me to not only maintain but also expand this podcast yes you could be the dark energy for the physics alive universe as an example my highest tier is 25 dollars per month and is particularly appropriate for physics and science departments at the college or high school level are episodes valuable for multiple educators in your department? Do you or could you use them for professional development days and department meetings? Does your department have a collective interest in supporting the podcast and enabling the show to be produced more consistently? Then this tier is a way to show your support. As a perk for contributing at this level, your department can request two guests for episodes each year and submit questions to be asked during those interviews. Your own personalized podcast. But now, on to episode 31. Let's talk about the laboratory experience in undergraduate courses. Simply put, we can do better. This is the title of the paper that my guest Natasha Holmes wrote in 2018 with my previous guest, Carl Wyman. How can we do better? What isn't working? What should our goals be if we want a measurably effective lab experience for our students? Well, let's dig into the research. Welcome to Physics Alive. I'm Brad Moser, and I want to help fellow educators spark new life into the physics classroom. Each episode, I'll draw inspiration from teachers, researchers, and science communicators. I hope you enjoy. Today, I'm speaking with Natasha Holmes, Anne S. Bowers' assistant professor at Cornell University. She arrived at Cornell after two years as a postdoc at Stanford University, and earning her PhD in physics at the University of British Columbia. Her research lab broadly studies teaching and learning in physics and other STEM courses, but she has a passion for investigating labs. Her group's largest research focus is on the efficacy of hands-on laboratory courses. They ask, how do we know what labs are achieving and what teaching methods improve outcomes? By probing these two research questions, they aim to better understand what labs should be aiming to achieve. So, my conversation with Carl Wyman ended on the topic of physics labs, but we only started to scratch the surface. And I'm ready to pick this topic up again and leave no stone unturned. So Natasha, welcome to Physics Alive, and thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you for having me. So on an old website of yours that you probably forgot is still live, you revealed that you've been dancing and singing since you were very young. And podcasts aren't a great way to demonstrate dance, but they are a perfect venue for vocal talents. Do you happen to have a little melody that you might be willing to share with us today? Sure. Um, 
Someday when I'm awfully low, when the world is cold, I will feel a glow just thinking of you and the way you look tonight. Okay, I'm going to rewrite the podcast script today. Let's just, we'll just have you sing the whole time. That's lovely. No, no, I really want to hear about your research too. Oh, thank you for sharing. That was wonderful. Uh, no problem. <laughs> so I often like to start with a moment of gratitude. So who has been an important mentor in your life and career and what role have they played in shaping your path? It's a great question. And I've thought a lot about, there've been a lot of mentors and people who have um, guided me throughout the way and inspired me um, with what I'm doing. Um, I think one of the most pivotal mentors that I had was actually goes back to my first year as an undergraduate student at the University of Guelph when I, at the time, was actually a biochemistry major because I knew that I loved science, but I didn't know what I could do with something like physics or math. So I figured biochemistry could open a lot of doors. Um, but it turns out I hated my biology and chemistry courses in my first year of college, mm. um, but had been loving my physics and math courses. And so I went to speak to my um, first semester mechanics instructor, Ernie McFarland, at the University of Guelph um, to get some insight about what I could do with a physics degree. And he gave me one of these presentations about possible careers that you can do with a physics degree, none of which interested me at all. Um, but at the end of it, he just, you know, very um, uh, passionately described that whatever I decide to do, I'm going to do it for a very long time and spend a lot of time doing it in any given day. And so I better love it. And so just following um, your passion and something that you love um, is really the best choice, regardless of where you think it might end up. Um, and he sort of encouraged me that doors would sort of find their way if I, you know, open up if I um, could follow them and, and pursue that passion. And I think that really, um, you know, I immediately switched my major and then um, to physics. And since then, really, um, it's been remarkable just sort of how that thought in the back of my mind just constantly, even, you know, I haven't seen him in years, um, but that um, sort of drive really has led me down this path of not worrying about where things are going to go, just kind of keep pursuing things that are exciting and weird doors that I never even imagined could exist um, would open up and offer me all kinds of cool opportunities. And oh, that's great. That, that, that's amazing that he could tell you a bunch of jobs that you didn't want to do. And yet you still went rushing into the field because they said, you better be passionate about it. And, you, and maybe that's the spark there. I, I think so many people in physics maybe feel that, that like, I just love physics and what it has to offer and what I learn about. Yeah. And I think especially in a sort of 21st century world, right, we don't know what kinds of jobs and careers our physics majors are going to be doing once they're on the job market. And so trying to plan for any particular physics career, I just feel like is a bad idea because you have no idea what's going to be out there and better to be open to those possibilities than um, to be in pursuit of something that may or may not actually be as exciting as, as some other thing that you never could have imagined. Yeah, what you were saying just makes me think of the next or some podcast episode I need to have, which is talk to somebody who knows about what are some of the up and coming careers that folks taking physics can do. Because I feel like I feel undereducated in how to help my students really go out into the world and know, you know, what to do other than be a, a teacher or a researcher, because there are so many other things out there to do. And, and I don't, I don't know what they are. No. And as academics, right, we know how to get into grad school. We know how to apply for postdocs. We know how to apply for faculty and teaching positions, but 
we have no idea how to apply for industry positions. Um, I recently had a graduate student um, who shifted into industry doing sort of machine learning in um, uh, sort of education assessment space and, you know, trying to mentor and guide him through that process of moving into industry. I felt just yeah, I'm so clueless. I had no idea how to how to help and support. Luckily, he was successful and has a um, exciting new job that he loves. Um, so I will basically be leaning on him for all of my future students. <laughs> awesome. Well, let's shift into things that you do feel like you're qualified to talk about. That'll be that'll be a great great thing to do here. <laughs> so I'm always curious how researchers and educators find their way way into education reform. More often than not, folks start off in a more traditional research field, but are then drawn into education. So digging back through your research record, record, I found a reference in 2009 to the Mars Exploration Rover Alpha Particle X-ray Spectrometer, uh, which also sounds really interesting. But every thesis and publication that seems to uh, that has come after that seems to be focused squarely on education. So it looks like you switched over pretty early on. What, what drew you to education research and even more specifically, a focus on the laboratory experience? Yeah, the work with the Alpha Particle X-ray Spectrometer and the Mars Rovers was my undergraduate thesis at the University of Guelph. Uh-huh. Um, and I that work was obviously very cool. I mean, studying Mars and, you know, studying a device that then went on the Mars Rovers and studied a bunch of rocks up there was just like the coolest thing I could have possibly imagined. <laughs> and I... After working on that, I explored a couple of other sort of research areas just to find out if that was really sort of what I was excited about or if maybe there was something else. Um, I tried theoretical astronomy, sort of doing planetary formation simulations and made a bunch of very pretty pictures, but otherwise was not super excited about that. Um, I considered observational astronomy and sort of exoplanet stuff. Um, I took a subatomic physics course in my senior year of undergrad, and all of a sudden particle physics was what I wanted to do. And by the time I got to grad school, it was pretty clear to me that I sort of loved all aspects of physics, but didn't always love doing all aspects of physics. Mm -hmm. Um, And as a first semester grad student, I started TAing. Um, The department at the University of British Columbia had a very cool TA training program that I um, participated in. And they used a lot of sort of research-based teaching methods, which was sort of what opened my eyes to physics education research as a field. Um, So I signed up to take a teaching and learning in physics course um, with uh, Carl Lyman, who ended up being my postdoc advisor years later. Um, And again, through that course, just sort of reading papers from PER and having opinions about them and (laughs) being excited about them um, and wanting to sort of study and know more. Compared to at the same time, I was in a journal club for a with a neutrino physics group where reading those papers, it was sort of, I don't know what's going on. And yeah, neutrinos <laughs> are cool, but I'm way more excited about the stuff I'm reading in this other class. Um, and so that was sort of what started steering me in that direction. And so I signed on to do a sort of small part-time project in my first year of grad school um, with some folks doing PER at um, the University of British Columbia and from there, I just sort of dove in head first. So I'm ashamed to admit that my my first year in graduate school at the University of Delaware, um, there there was one faculty member there who was trying to show the, the the TA's physics education research, and me and my cohort grumped about it and didn't want to do it. And I I wish I could go back and sort of like go, 
slap me silly. It's like, no, come on, pay attention to this. This is the thing that you actually are most interested in. And then maybe I could have gone on and gotten a PhD in, in PER, but instead I, I dragged my feet and waited seven or eight years to realize, oh, this is what I'm really interested in. But yeah, we can't all come to it at the same time. <laughs> I, I think one of the things that helped it with the UBC program actually, and something that I've tried to take um, since I've come to Cornell here is that it was entirely graduate student run. Yeah, and so okay. it was. It was my peers sort of preaching these ideas mm -hmm. about um, education research and evidence-based teaching, rather than some PER faculty member. Um, and yeah, that's a great point. PER people, right? They were themselves um, astronomers and um, condensed matter experimentalists and theorists and stuff like that. And I think there was something, something about that sort of for TAs by TAs. We have a paper that I ended up writing with um, a lot of these um, the TA training folks about that experience and just how impactful it is mm -hmm. to get that messaging from your peers rather than from this sort of more senior authority. Oh, there's so many papers we can talk about. I find that when I'm doing the research for these, for these episodes, it's like, I find paper after paper and like, I want to talk about all of them. And, and then my episode goes for an hour and a half and I'm trying not to do that. So <laughs> before we start to dig into the nuts and bolts of your research, uh, although we're going to kind of start getting there anyway, I guess. Uh, I want to know all about your favorite lab. And I watched a short video produced by Cornell that featured you talking about an inquiry-based lab approach. And in the videos, students were hard at work eyeing up the pendulums. And then a few weeks ago on Twitter, you expressed excitement about being back in the teaching lab. And I quote, we had a blast today doing what I love best, measuring periods of a pendulum. And there was a little heart. So what's up with the pendulums? <laughs> Uh, that's a great question. Uh, so uh, there was a, a phase at one point where we thought every publication I was ever going to write was going to feature the Pendulum Lab. Um, <laughs> this, this lab, my passion for this lab actually was a, um, inherited from my PhD advisor, Doug Bond, who is convinced that he could run an entire undergraduate physics lab curriculum only involving periods of a pendulum. Um, I haven't taken it that far, but I understand where he's going. The, the pendulum. I think lab, at some point the students will revolt. Oh yeah. <laughs> like no more pendulums. We're done. They revolt after two weeks of measuring okay, yeah. pendulum. So we've stopped at two <laughs> or three um, labs. But the the beauty of the pendulum is so in particular the lab that we we've been playing with is this one where we get students testing the angle dependence of the period of a pendulum, and they. Um, go in assuming that the angle isn't going to matter because that's what the equation says. But, you know, we know that there's a small angle approximation that can quite easily be shown to break down um, with either at high enough angles or with reasonable, pretty reasonable precision. And so the whole experiment is about getting students to experience the relationship between the quality of your measurement and the uncertainty and the precision and the sort of the actual physics that you can uncover um, with that precision. But what it also does is reveals all of these amazing um, biases that students have towards confirming these textbook equations. Hmm. And this idea hmm. of the textbook says the angle isn't going to matter. And so I'm going to, in some cases, actually fudge my data to make it so. And so it ends up just being this wonderful learning opportunity on so many different um, dimensions. And the students, and from a, from a, Equipment, it's such a it's such a bare bones. There's nothing hidden. There's nothing, um, you know, it's not black boxed in any fancy equipment or anything. It's just this mm -hmm. very simple, elegant experiment. It's really accessible. Um, they can iterate a lot of times. There's a lot of ways to explore things like 
what's causing the uncertainty and variability in your measurements. Um, so it's just this like, just beautiful, elegant, complex <laughs> um, experiment that, that we, that ends up revealing a lot of, a lot of stuff for students. I have to say, so I, I joined uh, Hamilton College a, a couple of years ago and their, their intro sequence, there are still quite a number of the traditional sort of labs that are there, but in the, the, the beginning of the second semester, we start with two pendulum labs. So the, the, the amplitude um, dependence of the period is one of them that we do. So I've, I've really liked that one and, and sort of that d discovery process and, and really how to take this measurement so that you can uncover what the relationship really is. Uh, and then, and then the second one we do is, uh, that the following week they have to measure G to, uh, one part in a thousand. So it's really about reducing uncertainties. And, um, we were referencing a paper that, that apparently has students doing that for about three weeks. We just do it in one week and, and that's, that's enough for the students, but it's something that we can talk about. You know, when I, you know, I, I teach the, the second year quantum lab and I'm continually pointing back to some of these labs. And I say, remember that pendulum lab? Remember what we learned from that? They're like, do the uncertainty calculations first so that you can help design your experiment. Like that's it. <laughs> that's beautiful. And it's right. It's such a, like, I feel like they're able to get such control of the experiment that those messages are just so much easier to impart on them because it's this like very open, there's nothing, yeah, there's nothing confusing about the equipment or anything like that. And so you mm -hmm. really can just dig into it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we only do a couple of those types of labs. So I'm going to be really interested to learn about some of the other things that you've tried and, and other groups that are, that are out there. Um, so to kind of frame our conversation in May of this year, you and co-author Emily Smith published an article in nature physics titled best practice for instructional labs. The abstract is short and straightforward. I loved it. Undergraduate labs are more effective and more positive for students. If they encourage an investigation and decision-making, not verification of textbook concepts. No, the end, QED. I really want to unpack this article. When I started to read it, I thought I knew what you were going to say. And I thoroughly agreed with the abstract and I was welcoming the sort of indictment of the cookbook verification labs. And yet some of the recom recommendations surprised me, not because I disagreed, but simply because I hadn't seen the data and connected the dots. And, um, and, and we're gonna get into uh, a, a piece that really sort of surprised me a little bit later um, in my connection with modeling instruction. Uh, so an early statement in the article is this, the motivation behind labs can be in service of theory, in service of experiment, or some combination of the two. Can you say a bit more about these two motivations? Yeah. So um, this is actually language that I um, inherited from Sully Ali, who's at the um, University of Cape Town in South Africa. The, the premise is sort of, you know, what is your ultimate goal in terms of what students are going to come away with at the end of the day? Is it that they have some understanding of canonical physics theory, or is it that they come away with some understanding of what it means to do experimental physics? Um, and we may have both of those goals simultaneously, but the it is possible to have a goal for one without the other. You know, a, a theory. I think the the very traditional, um, over like highly structured. Um, what we call verification labs are this like explicitly in service of theory. The whole point is to demonstrate a particular phenomenon so that students come away with this um, real world visualization or whatever it may be um, of a particular theory or um, 
piece of canonical physics uh, that they would see in the in a textbook. On the other side, being in service of experiment, it ultimately if you're in th service of experiment without any sort of theory goals, it doesn't matter what results students come up with, the, the actual outcome, the theoretical knowledge that is produced by the experiment is irrelevant. And all it is is about teaching students what it means to, for example, characterize the uncertainty in their measurements, find ways to reduce uncertainty, design experiments, ask questions, et cetera, et cetera, um, with no sort of care for what the outcome is. There's sort of a, a freedom there, and, and maybe that, that's a piece that, that um, we'll get to talk about, that since you're not trying to link to any particular theory topic that's happening in class, it gives you the freedom to kind of really explore and develop those experimental skills in a, in a specific way where you're not yeah tied to a particular piece of content. Yeah, and also not tied to a, a series of content, right? I think another sort of challenge that we often have is the sense that we have to do a new topic every week. But when you don't actually yeah. care about the topic, <laughs> when the topic is just a, 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 a way to contextualize the experiment that the students are doing, then you can spend multiple weeks on one experiment, right? You can spend two or three weeks on periods of a pendulum because I don't need to you know, cover a bunch of content. In thinking about these two motivations, it seems obvious that one of them should have an easier time being successful than another, as we're kind of talking about here. So instructional labs are a perfect place to work on skills such as modeling, experiment design, analyzing data, etc. But on the other hand, it is not immediately evident how successful labs are when they are focused on verifying theory. We can certainly hope they're successful because that's how most labs have been taught for a very long time. And yet the article states, Research indicates that instructional labs explicitly designed to improve students' understanding of theoretical physics models do not measurably achieve this goal. In fact, you said that twice in the same paragraph, sort of to underscore the fact that, did you see this the first time we said it? Because this is, this is big. <laughs> Your study seemed to span at least the past five years, probably more. Uh, a 2017 article, a multi-institution study on the educational benefit of labs for reinforcing physics content. And another article last year, direct measurement of the impact of teaching experimentation in physics labs, you know, seem to be some of the, the published work on the, the evidence for this. So what has been your approach to studying this question and how has the physics community responded? So the approach to studying it, so that the two studies we did in um, slightly different ways, one of them um, was using data from three different, ultimately three different institutions who um, whose lab courses were optional. And so we could do a controlled study comparing the students who took the lab versus the students who didn't take the lab on whether it improves their sort of physics content knowledge. Um, obviously, there's a bunch of selection bias issues. So a lot of the work was just in how do we, how do we account for the fact that a student who opts to take the lab or not is, is not the same, you know, these are not identical populations. Um, and so in the, the more recent study, we had a situation, we had been changing, starting to change the labs here at Cornell. Um, and so we had basically in one semester with five different lab sections, three of them were our traditional verification concepts focused labs, and two of them were now actually about um, exclu exclusively teaching experimentation. Um, and so in that case, they were almost randomly divided between the two classes so we could do this sort of clean direct comparison. And in both studies, we find between these, these pairs of populations that students' performance on the final exam are identical, um, regardless of whether they 
took a lab, didn't take a lab, or in our case, took a concepts-focused lab or took an um, experimentation-focused lab, again, with some careful sort of controlling for various things. Second part of your question, how do people respond to this? We get a little bit of everything. Um, so I think most of the time when I talk to physicists, um, their reaction is sort of, they sort of shrug their shoulders like, <laughs> yeah, of course, we knew that those labs were useless. Um, and there's sort of this sense of, this isn't all that surprising. Um, I think the PER community has actually been more surprised um, because there's a lot of sort of conflicting ideas in, in this. So there's a lot of intention in the traditional labs with things like, you know, sense making, you know, drawing on things like the University of Washington tutorials for students to really think conceptually about what's going on. Um, and so there's this interesting sort of tension of what's not working here, given that a lot of stuff is borrowed from things that seem to work well. Mm. And so one of the things that we explored in this um, article was um, the comparison with demonstrations, because that was a, um, I was giving a workshop once and someone sort of brought up, don't demonstrations basically do this and show measurable impacts <laughs> on student mm -hmm. conceptual understanding? Yes. And, and so we started to try to unpack sort of what's different about a demonstration, in particular, an interactive lecture demonstration compared to these traditional um, sort of verification labs. And when you actually sort of think about the, the kind of cognitive activities that the students are actually doing in these two settings, the demos are a much more efficient, clean, active way to get students thinking about these concepts, whereas the labs are, A, there's just like crazy cognitive load because there's so much stuff going on. And they often happen, they're set up to sort of happen after students have seen the concept. So it really is, you already know the answer at the outset and we're just showing that it's true, which is not what happens with a demo. Usually with the interactive lecture demonstrations, it's what do you think's gonna happen? Okay, this weird thing happened. Now let's try to explain it. And it's usually surprising um, which is a very different sort of cognitive process. Yeah, I, I really like that 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 piece of the. This was, this was one of the pieces I think I wasn't expecting out of the paper, where you were you were going into saying basically it's like yeah, do do interactive lecture demonstrations, have students make predictions uh, and and see phenomena in class, and don't bother doing it in the lab. It was it was sort of just like a bold statement of it's like yeah, just just do it here in in class, like have that be what you do in class, and in the lab have a different purpose for it. And, and of course, and, and talking about, about simulations as well with the FETs and, and other groups out there doing those things and, and how powerful those can be for visualizing and sense making. So, but yeah, just to sort of come out and say, it's like, let's, let's do that in, in the classroom and in the lab can be, can be this, this other thing. I loved it. You know, I see a statement like that and it's like, yes, it's like, I hadn't thought of that. And it seems so, it kind of seems so obvious and, and now, and now wanting to, to act on it. In my first teaching job out of graduate school, I joined a physics department that was beginning to use model instruction in a studio environment that merged lab and lecture. So I took the two-week training and I found that I loved this constructivist approach. Each new unit is shaped by a new problem statement. How does variable A depend on variable B? And students develop models that explain what they observe. So it's sort of putting the experiment first to try to build the, the, the topics and the mathematical expressions of models that we're going to use in class. I now philosophically have a really hard time teaching labs in a follow direction style. So in, in, in changing roles, I've, I've had to go back to that a, a little bit more. And it, you know, it kind of 
it hurts me at a soul level sometimes because I've, I've really bought into this constructivist approach. But one of the early statements in your paper stopped me short. Labs may achieve this aim, service to theory, by having students discover the models through their experiments or demonstrate models seen previously in lecture or the textbook. It was like, wait a minute. That first part, discover models through their experiments. That's what modeling instruction does. Does that mean modeling instruction is actually in service to theory? And I, I don't know. That was a big reveal to me. It just sort of stopped me in my tracks. I thought I wasn't doing verification labs anymore. And yet it seems I may, in fact, still be doing exactly the same thing, but in disguise. So long story short, what does a curriculum or, or where does a curriculum like modeling fit on on the spectra have you thought about that or or some other curricula out there you know i think of like the the aisle environment um the investigative science learning environment and, and other things out there where what have you seen with with some of this yeah so um i have thought about this a little bit and my impression having never been i've taken an aisle workshop um and i know eugenie ekna's work and their group um obviously very well and i collaborate with eric brew on a number of projects so i'm very familiar with, with modeling instruction things, um, having never been in a modeling instruction class, mind you. My impression is that modeling and IELTS and similar um, curricula are in the both category. They're sort of trying to do both the engagement with experimentation as well as the sort of service to theory. And my reason for saying that is that ultimately from these activities, there is a, a canonical piece of physics as the target from these activities yeah, yeah. Um, compared to the labs that we're doing where I, I legitimately have to let go of any concern for what result the students get other than just a result that is supported by their evidence and data. Um, if, if a student wants to go on some tangent with the period of a pendulum and do an experiment exploring the effects of air resistance, I need to just let that happen. Mm. Um, Whereas that if the goal was really for them to understand the small angle approximation and discover the small angle approximation, going off on that tangent is now a distraction and um, not going to achieve that goal. And so from modeling in aisle, there often is, most often there actually is this desired outcome that the, the collectively the class is supposed to sort of land on through the process of science. And, and of course, you know, decades, centuries, millennia of physics um, experiments have landed on this canon. And so the experiments should discover <laughs> these ideas. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, there's no reason that that won't happen, um, but it still is sort of the intended outcome. So what do you think of that? <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I- any, board, any bold statements you want to make? <laughs> yeah, so the the- the bold statement that I will offer is, and I think this is an open research question that we don't know, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, which is, you know, we, we know that these aisle and, and modeling um, have all kinds of wonderful outcomes for students' engagement in experiment-like behaviors, right? They do learn a lot of scientific abilities. Um, and a, a lot of times their sort of attitudes and epistemologies towards science do improve compared to either not or traditional instruction or whatever. But what I don't know is whether students, so, so one of the things that we found in our experiments with the pendulum, for example, right, is this like questionable research practices. These, this idea that the purpose of physics lab, at least, is to demonstrate theory. 
And there's this very interesting epistemology. Um, so um, Ben Zwickel and Dohoi Hugh have a, a really cool series of papers where they ask students a number of questions about this sort of epistemology of science and this remarkably large number of students indicate that the, the goal of physics experiment is to verify theory. That's the whole point. A theorist comes up with an idea, an experimentalist goes and tests it, um, as opposed to sort of discovering this new, new phenomenon or something. And so what I don't know from modeling in aisle is whether there is this deep sort of epistemological understanding of experiment as this thing that can make new discoveries that we don't already know the answer to, um, as opposed to just being about either testing or verifying theories. So in, in sort of in sort of thinking about you know the the advantages that that modeling and NIL and other uh, types of investigative environments have versus um, the the uh, lab in service to experiment is in the who we're teaching in the course. So I, I'm thinking it looks like a lot of the work that you have done is working with physics majors and engineering majors, which often have a lot of the same goals. So, so reforming those labs to help them be able to be more effective at physics research. And I'm wondering, you know, ha have you started looking at, you know, the, the intro course for life science majors, for instance, which is really a huge population uh, and is, has sort of been a population I've specialized in with physics for life sciences curriculum recently. So, so I'm really interested in thinking about, is this something I would want to do with them? Or maybe it's not, maybe I stick with something like modeling for that environment, but the physics major, you know, we, we transition to uh, labs in service of experiment. And, and I, I wonder if you have any thoughts on, on that and how you might bin those or not bin those. Yeah. So it's, um, so the, the funny thing is, yeah, we have not changed the labs for our physics for life sciences students here at Cornell. Um, and, at this point, they are still fairly traditional and very much verification and in, in service of theory. And so the to me, the, the question is exactly the important one. I don't really have an answer at this point. There's multiple ways that I've thought about it. You know, on the one hand, the experiment goals that we have um, align super well for the engineering population with the kinds of, you know, ABET accreditation engineering goals um, that departments typically have. And for the physics majors, um, our students were very, you know, certainly these behaviors just represent this other side of physics that often um, gets ignored in an undergraduate curriculum. So for the physics majors, they really do get to see what, it, what theoretical physics is and what experimental physics is. For the life science students, there's sort of, and I think also for even non-science majors, there's, um, it's a much bigger question of, do, is it important for them to know about experimental physics? And you could take a sort of liberal arts approach of if they're going to take a physics course, we want them to know what it really means to do physics and understanding the sort of epistemology and philosophy of experimental physics is more important than any particular canonical knowledge that they may or may not come away yeah. with. Yeah. On the other hand, you know, often the for the life science majors, the canonical content is more important because the whole idea is we want them to have this sort of physical underpinning of the biological phenomenon that they may eventually study. And so tying it that way is actually the better thing. And experimental physics is irrelevant. Or sort of another approach that we've been thinking about more recently is the experimental goals 
you know, physics is a great place to teach things like um, uncertainty and variability and mm -hmm. what does it mean that models and scientists' ideas and claims about the world change and evolve and in light of all of the recent <laughs> evidence and ways mm -hmm. that science has shown up, um, you could imagine a lab course that essentially is designed in the context of physics with goals to help people understand things about vaccinations and mask wearing and um, climate change and all of that kind of stuff. So at this point, I think there's no, I don't have a, a sort of answer about what the best approach is. I think it's all very sort of De yeah, depends on your goals and what you really want the students to get away with, but, or sorry, come away with, not get away with. Um, <laughs> there is, but yeah, but it's, it's um, any, any of those options, I think are great options for those populations. Yeah. I, I can imagine that this is, it, there's probably no one right answer here. It, it may be, you know, what, what are the goals of, of this, of the students that are in a particular class? And if you have, you know, sort of straight up biology majors and uh, pre-health majors in one class, you know, there may be sort of mixed, mixed things happening, mixed goals that they have. But if you have a whole class, that's just people going into medicine, it's like, well, then, then you might be able to like target into, it's like, what do we really want our future medical professionals, professionals to be able to do? What's, what sort of skills do we want them to have? They're, they're not going to be doing research themselves, but how can they interpret the research results? And maybe one focuses on that. So I can see, I can see there being no one, one answer. Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the things that sort of has come up is like, well, then if you if you're focused on sort of the experiment part, should there be a physics lab or should there just be science lab where we learn about hmm. like how to do experimental science? Yeah, um, yeah. And does it actually need to be discipline specific, which I think is a whole other fun conversation that we've never talked about. Oh, um, now that'd be interesting. Yeah, I'm just thinking like you could either take the physics lecture or take the chemistry lecture. But then there's this is going to be a science lab that you're in if you only need to take a science course. Oh, that's and so that's so part of me just to I think my my like can't possibly change too much at once kind of self um, <laughs> can convince myself that there are there are things about physics that are um, advantageous to teaching some of the sort of experimentation goals that we have. So teaching uncertainty and variability, right? Like with a pendulum, you can just control that system so much better than you can ever control a biological system. And so for teaching about precision and, um, you know, the relationship between precision and the complexities of a model that you can actually discover, um, I think that physics has a lot of sort of affordances compared to other disciplines. So that's my sort of like justification for keeping it <laughs> as a separate physics lab at this point. But I am, I am open to the fact that that may not be the right answer. We'll, see. well, let's let's focus back in on this this idea, though, of lab and service of experiment. Um, you know, the, those other conversations are fantastic as well. But we'll 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 hone back in on, on what this paper was kind of really getting to and some of your other work. So one starting point for you has been the AAPT learning goals for labs that were released in 2014. And I'm going to link those in the, the show notes, along with all the papers that we're talking about here. Another starting point has been getting input from departmental faculty. And all of these are informing a course transformation model. So I could personally spend all day digging into your approach to lab design. And I kind of think I have because I have 11 of your papers saved on my computer that I've been scanning through. Uh, but for this conversation, I'd really like to focus on what you are trying out in the classroom. So we've talked about the Pendulum Lab. 
Can you share another one or two examples of Transform Labs? What are their goals and have you seen evidence of success with those as well? Yeah, so um, we can talk about the lab that we're about to go into next week um, in the semester here. So any of my students who are listening get a, a preview of what's to come. Um, oh, uh, you uh, have high hopes for how quickly I'll get this out. <laughs> so the our next, our third lab um, in our mechanics part is a, a Hooke's Law experiment, which nominally is set up as test Hooke's Law and, you know, sort of design an experiment to test Hooke's Law. And as the semester progresses, we sort of pull back on guidance and instruction. So things become more and more sort of open-ended. Um, and in this lab in particular, not only is it just sort of design and experiment, but it's also on testing any object, any stretchy object. And so we invite mm -hmm. students to bring stuff in from home, um, or we have a sort of um, a little briefcase box that has a bunch of stretchy stuff in it um, that they can pull from, and they get to just test Hooke's Law on this random stretchy stuff. And so um, it starts with students just sort of, you know, trying to figure out if they're hair elastics or um, exercise pants or gummy worms um, <laughs> follow this sort of- Really thing. long ones. I've done an experiment with those. Right. That's fun. <laughs> um, so whether those follow the sort of um, linear relationship between force and extension. And then the second part of it is sort of ask a new question that is emerging from this, mm -hmm. um, where we sort of get them um, thinking a little bit more, not just about testing this existing model, but can you, have you seen something weird um, and, and can you design an experiment to, to explore this sort of weird thing? And this is where we start to be more and more influenced by um, the aisle framework as well. And so in this lab, students will do things like, so the gummy worm, for example, um, is trying to figure out if they can predict when the gummy worm is gonna stretch or sorry, snap when it's going to break. Mm -hmm. That's re yeah. um, repeatable with different gummy worms, for example. Um, students have done things like exploring twisting. So if I have mm. something that is stretching and I twist it, does it have the same spring constant? And is there a relationship between the number of twists and the spring constant, mm -hmm. for example, that I, that I observe? Um, they test temperature dependence, they look for sort of hysteresis, does the behavior on stretching versus contracting um, look the same? And again, they're doing this on all kinds of weird and random things. And um, one of my former graduate students described it as like the big success of this is it's not Googleable. <laughs> There's, you yeah. can't just look up, you know, even the period of a pendulum, right? They're, they can look that up and find that answer. Um, but with, with this thing, because they're bringing in random stuff from home, there is no very, it's not really easily um, Googleable to find that answer on the internet. Yeah, I was wondering if if there was any any sort of attempt made to now connect it to theory of any sort. It like go into like, well, now we got to start thinking about stress and strain and and bulk modulus and no, not bulk modulus, uh, Young's modulus, yeah. and and all those pieces. Or you just you don't even bother with that. It's like no, just let's just figure out how to experimentally see what's happening here and see what interesting things we find and if there's any relationships. Yeah, exactly. And if they if they can get to the point of drawing on other theory to try to explain what they're seeing, that's great. Um, but again, it's not the point, And so I don't really care. Um, so the, the twisting, for example, right, a group were um, perplexed by this, it, the behavior ended up being the opposite of what they expected. And so the TA sort of ended up having this conversation with them about, you know, take a piece of metal that's a, a, just a straight piece of metal. And if you try to stretch it, what happens? Okay, but now if we take a typical spring, 
the idea is that it's all coiled up, right? You've got this sort of twisting stuff. And now all of a sudden it's this very stretchy, different behavior. And can you use that to make sense of the data that you're seeing here? Um, mm. Which they did. And, you know, that ends up being a great sort of discovery. But even then it's not, we're not really drawing on like, here's this idea from the textbook. Can you use it to explain what's yeah. happening? It was even just here's a thing in the world. <laughs> Can you use it to explain? What's yeah. <laughs> How about spaghetti snapping? Have you ever, have you done anything with yeah, that? No one's There's done some... spaghetti snapping, but I should suggest that to some of my students. That, that is a, that is a lab. So when I was trying to do, make some of the labs for uh, physics for life science students, I was thinking, you know, what's a way to get into like uh, compression and strength of, of bones. It's like, well, maybe like take, spaghetti and do different lengths of it and try that. And I think I saw at least one or two mentions of it online. So there's other folks who've looked at that, but I mean, that could be great because you can either, you know, be pressing it from above or you can try to hang things from, from a beam that's suspended and see when it snaps. So there's, I think there's a lot of rich, complex relationships there. And again, like for, for one of the things that's really cool, especially if they're exploring stuff like the stretching, um, they have to think very, oh, sorry, um, snapping. They have to think very carefully about their experimental design because once it's snapped, you can't go back. And uh -huh. so, right, they have to be very careful with thinking about how much data they're going to need and, you know, all of that kind of stuff, which um, I think sort of adds this very cool layer of that sort of pre-planning to, to their the experiment side. All right. Do you have another example? I love that one. I'm curious uh, if there's something in more of the, like maybe something that has a more complex setup. Do you have anything with more complex setups or you try to really stay away from sort of the magical black boxness? Um, so we do eventually get to E&M stuff. And when uh, I did these interviews with faculty about sort of what they think students should learn from lab courses, they would all say stuff about, you know, learn how to handle real physics equipment. And be like, cool, like mm -hmm. what? And they all say oscilloscope and that's it. <laughs> So I knew when pinned when pinned down. When pinned down <laughs> that was about it. Was okay. Nothing else actually matters. Um, I according <laughs> to the Cornell Experimental Physics faculty. So we so we had to put oscilloscopes in our lab. Um, so we do have a little bit of black boxing that ends up sort of happening there. But even then, you know, we're we're trying to really make sure that they're thinking deeply about what is this thing actually measuring and what is it doing. So we have a series of labs. We actually. Similar to the Hooke's Law Lab, we have a Ohm's Law Lab where, again, it's here are some materials and do they obey Ohm's Law? Um, and in that case, we have them testing resistors, which are going to be nice and ohmic and no surprises, light bulbs, which eventually they should be able to see the temperature dependence um, start to mess with the, the resistance, um, and then uh, LEDs. And those, um, Eugenia Ekina and her colleagues have a series of papers in I don't remember if it was AJP or the physics teacher. One of those. All about like weird and wonderful things that LEDs do and experiments you can do with those. Um, and that uh, inspired us for that lab. So we had them explore those. And there, especially with the LEDs, it's just a, like, what is this behavior and what is happening? And they get to do some kind of discovery there. And then we have a Faraday's Law lab where the students typically haven't learned about Faraday's Law yet. So even though there sort of is a correct answer in the textbook, they have, they've really not seen it. And even if they have seen it, they don't really understand it based on my experience at the intro level. Um, yeah. And so we have them, we've got coils that are attached to an oscilloscope and they just drop magnets through them and look at the response oh, okay. and design mm -hmm. experiments to try to figure out different variables that affect the response, whatever that may be. 
Um, and so it's a sort of control of variables sort of experiment, right? Can you actually isolate one variable at a time and figure out how it affects yeah. this signal? So, so have you reformed the entire introductory class at, at this point? Like every lab has now been replaced at least somewhat? Um, yeah, mm -hmm. at this point, and we actually created a standalone lab course this year that is now oh. Intro to Experimental Physics. And it includes both mechanics and ENM in one semester. Okay, so is that so as, as a standalone course, is that something that somebody who took Intro Physics one and two, like they would just take the one semester of that, or like this is for a different student? I'm just kind of curious of the logistics of that now. Yeah, so we have it actually as a co-requisite with the mechanics course. Okay. Um, and so the students are most of the students are taking mechanics and taking the lab. And then next semester, they will take ENM without a lab. Um, and that okay. means that we do all of these experiments really before they have seen any electricity magnetism. Mm -hmm. If we wanted to see some of these labs and be able to use them ourselves as the teachers who are listening to this, is there any place that we can find them? Have you, have you put your materials out there? Yeah, so we have all of our materials posted on physport.org. Um, I can send, we can post the link, um, in the notes. Well, all of my listeners are well aware of Fizzport because that was my first interview that I had with Sam McKagan. So that that's like saying, you know, a year later, all of my students should remember this thing that I talked about last year. <laughs> Before getting on to maybe if you want to talk about something else, are there any, are there any other topics with the lab curriculum idea that you're excited to share? Um, so the, the, what was the third course in our intro sequence now is the second course is a completely open-ended project lab where the students get to ask their own research questions. They've got the whole semester to conduct an experiment that answers that question. And um, in this one, I think it's a really good demonstration of what we learned even in the earlier, for example, pendulum lab about, you know, there were two possible flaws with our traditional labs and those were this sort of confirmatory nature this being in service of theory or what people are and what i was more hung up on um, when i first entered this field was the the structure right this idea of the labs were set up telling students turn this knob press this dial collect this many data points um etc etc and so one of the things that i think we learned was that the structure is not actually inherently bad it's it's okay. really the, the confirmatory in service of theory that is problematic. And so um, with the project lab, for example, it is hugely structured in terms of we have an activity where we talk about what is a research question. We have the students write proposals that then get peer reviewed and then expert reviewed by faculty members. We have checkpoints that they have to submit throughout the semester. They have to submit lab notes that describe what they're doing, why they're doing it, uh, what they found, what they're going to do next time, who's going to do what, and how they're dividing tasks between them, et cetera, et cetera. And so this sort of, um, I think the lesson that we sort of learned from this was that going to a, what we think of as more open-ended lab in terms of the outcome is sort of unknown, doesn't mean that you just give students complete free reign and let them do whatever. Um, you do still have to really structure it and, and, you know, scaffolding is, is a sort of other term that comes into it, but it's really supporting them in 
the experimental physics stuff and figuring out how to actually make those decisions and um, get through that process in a sort of expert-like way. To wrap up our conversation, I'd love for you to share one key action step that our listeners could take right now if they're interested in what you've been sharing, and then let us know where we could learn more about your work. So I think um, the one sort of big takeaway is this, this shifting of what are you in service of and allowing yourself the liberty to do some labs where they really are in service of experiment rather than theory to let students really see what it is to do experimental physics, this whole other side, this often much bigger side um, of the physics sort of empire. Um, and I guess point number two, that structure is not inherent. It doesn't mean that you just have to give them free reign of the classroom. You can still structure it a ton, but let them really sort of play around and see what it means to discover things authentically, as authentically as possible. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, all of our labs, I said, are posted on physport.org. Um, and we have a website, cder.as.cornell.edu, where we have some of our publications and things listed. Well, Natasha, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Me also. Thank you again for having me. This has been a fun mini-series these past four episodes. My conversation with Louis Delaurier led me to speak with Carl Wyman, who then introduced me to Natasha. There have been a lot of common threads these past few weeks, and it has been so valuable for me to see the data. The data that shows what isn't working in the classroom and lab, and the data that shows what is. If you want to see some of that data yourself, and read any of the other articles that Natasha and I talked about in today's episode, you can find links to everything in the episode show notes. Find them on your podcast app, or go to physicsalive.com lab. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so that you can stay up to date with each episode as it comes out. You can also find updates at Physics Alive on Twitter. That's a great place to comment on the episode and keep the conversation going. You can also reach me at brad at physicsalive.com. If you enjoy the show, leave a five-star rating on your podcast app. This will unlock key data that researchers need to better understand how quantum mechanics and gravity fit together or it will help more educators find the show. It's one of those two. Thanks again for listening in, and I hope you've been inspired to rethink your introductory labs. Today's action step, think about that one lab that hasn't gone so well over the years and that you've been thinking about replacing. Transforming an entire lab curriculum is a big task, but what if you start with just one lab? Maybe you can slip Natasha's favorite pendulum lab into that spot, and maybe you'll like what you see, and then, who knows where it goes from there? Please join me again for the next episode of Physics Alive. Until then, may you ever fan the flame of inquiry and be well.